Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and welcome to the Who Not How podcast with Ben Hardy. And as we have talked about, if you've been on the podcast before, that this is a podcast, but it's also a podcast that's creating the first of what we hope are many major market books, and the first book is Who Not How, so we're actually using conversations between Ben and me to actually flesh out uh, the book, which Ben is deep into. We signed the contract last October, and we're shooting for an October 2020 release of the big book. And along the way, we also have the collaboration of Tucker Max from Scribe, and Tucker's one of the great book strategists and packagers in the United States, and we also have the collaboration with Hay House, major publisher out of Carlsbad, California. It was Ben and Tucker who actually asked Reed, the owner of Hay House, to actually think about having a major series of books by one Dan Sullivan, who I know very well, and that I would be very open to that, and he would be very open to that. And so that was all put together. So my part of it, besides writing the little book of Who Not How, I'm open to any kind of question that Ben asked me about, well, what do you think about this, and how do you explain that, and how does Who Not How work here? So this is really what the podcast series are, and I think you'll find the podcast just valuable in themselves. Yeah, I do have some questions for you, but I think right before we started, you asked, what are three insights that I've gotten since I've seen you last as I've been deep in the trenches of who, not how? Yeah. Yeah, so I'll share those with you. So that's the question I asked you. (laughs) Ben sent me a really great, enthusiastic message just before we went on, so I wanted to really, really dig down to see what particularly (laughs) was fascinating him about this project. First off, I will admit Writing this book has been a different process than writing any of the other books I've written for a few reasons. One is is that the idea source don't initially come from myself. All of my other books were ideas that I came up with kind of from scratch, whereas this one, I heard Dan explain who, not how, and I was like, I want to write about and figure out that. So what's interesting about this process, and then I'll share a few of the ideas that have been blowing my mind as I've been learning more about who, not how, is that Dan is such a who thinker that in order to successfully navigate in Dan's world, you have to become a good who thinker yourself. So like Dan will get a who, in this case, it's me, but Dan has many different who's. And in order for that who to be successful at their work, they have to be very good at becoming a who thinker themselves. (laughs) So like Mm -hmm. in order for me to really do well at this project, I have to be really good at who's myself. And admittedly, I've gotten a lot better at that through the process of writing that and through the process of being a strategic coach. And that was kind of embodied in the fact that it took us about eight to 12 months to get a book deal. But once we started getting other who's involved and building a who network around this project, then all of a sudden results started moving forward. And so one thing that I think is interesting is that in order for people to successfully collaborate, it's not enough for the leader of the project to be good at finding who's, but every who involved has to increasingly become better at getting who's Mm -hmm. to surround their unique ability. And so that's something I've been getting better at. Mm -hmm. Just one other quick logistical thing that I'll share, and then I'll go into some of the interesting who, not how insights, is that I was talking to Tucker recently. Dan was talking in the last strategic coach meeting I was at about this amazing idea 
he talks about rejecting, <laughs> commit to the future. So that, you know, in order to commit to the future, you've got to reject the aspects of the present that are keeping you where you are and just seeing rejection in a positive light. And I was loving that idea. And then I sent a message to Tucker and I said, Dan is teaching these most amazing concepts right now. I think that we might have the next book after who, not how. And, <laughs> and he said, Ben, don't you realize like, this is already part of the plan. Like Hay House is waiting. As soon as Huna Howe's done, you can sell the next book and write the next book even before Hay House is done. So what's interesting and amazing just about the process and the system is I'm getting better at working in this type of who, you know, this is a very hooed out experience where you, mm-hmm. it's a very collaborative way of writing books and it's a lot more effective, but it's a learning curve for me. <laughs> and so it's amazing. And anyways, with all that said, one of the things that you said in an interview where you're talking about who not how is you were talking about how you, rather than measuring your age in years, you measure it by collaboration. Yes. The reason I thought this was interesting was rather than even measuring age by collaboration, I was thinking measuring progress by collaboration. And by collaboration, what you mean is teamwork. How many people are involved on anything, on any given set of projects in your life? And so I started looking at my life and saying, what areas of my life am I utilizing teamwork? So I went outside my house and there was a guy mowing my lawn because we're paying someone to mow my lawn. And I was thinking that's collaboration right there. Like that's a sign that I can Mm -hmm. measure progress in my life, that there's some form of collaboration and teamwork. This guy is a who. And so I was thinking about what are all of the other areas in my life where I'm not utilizing teamwork or collaboration. And so the first aha that I really loved is just that you can measure your progress as a person or just where you're at by the amount of collaboration and teamwork happening in every area of your life. And you were talking to Shannon Waller about that you have teams for your health, obviously financial, you've got teams of who's and teamwork in every area of your life, except mm-hmm. for the two things you admitted in the thing that you just solely want to do by yourself. Mm-hmm. Going back to the point about measuring your life, not by your age, but by collaboration. collaboration, I'll do the reverse take on that because I notice the boomers are getting old. So, you know, we're within probably, I'm just trying to think, 64 is usually stated as the last year of the baby boomers, and then you start a new generation in 65. So that was 56. So this 56 years old is right now the youngest of the baby boomers, which means that in nine years, by retirement age, all the boomers will be retired. The boomers are a really interesting generation because I'm not one of them and you're not one of them. Okay, so I was born two years before the baby boom. I was born in 1944, and generally speaking, January 1st and 1946 is considered the start of the baby boom generation. So my generation was the smallest in history. It was the first generation that was smaller than the generation before it. And that was because of the Great Depression and the Second World War. And, you know, the birth rates fell off considerably during those two events. So we're actually the wealthiest. My generation is actually the wealthiest because it's just been a lifetime of abundance. There was always more than there were of my generation to actually take advantage of it, starting with education and everything like that. Jobs, you went out, there were more jobs than there were applicants. So my whole life has been, there's just always more than I'll ever need. And I think that's had a really distinct impact on my general attitude towards abundance. 
and especially the abundance that if you can write the check, you can have any kind of help that you want to have in your lifetime. And so I totally. think I had that attitude from a very early age is that there's an enormous amount of money and there's an enormous amount of skill. Your job is just to put the two together so that... Yeah. <laughs> and even with that, Ben, you know, I had to unlearn a lot of bad habits that I had learned about doing things myself and, you know, that somehow you were kind of cheating if you got other people to do the most important work. But what I notice now with the boomers, and this is the point I'd like to make, is there's this nostalgia and sentimentality that's coming from the boomers that I certainly didn't see in the generations who were older than me. And I'm not sure I see it in some of the later generations, but it's how all the things that we dreamed that we would do in our life, we're not doing them, you know? And there's kind of this, like, it's kind of a regret. There's kind of a regret. The boomers were gonna take the world by storm. And a lot of them just ended up as, you know, middle management bureaucrats who were waiting for their pension. You know, they were just waiting. And I would say the vast majority of them really didn't do anything that they were dreaming that they would do when they were kids. And now they're in their 50s and 60s and they're giving up. But what really strikes me is that I'm doing far, far more than I ever dreamed about 20 years ago. So I'm in my 70s and I'm doing far, far more. I'm achieving far more the kind of collaboration I have with you and with Tucker and with Reed Tracy, I couldn't have even dreamed about. I always thought about having major market books, but I just was not going to be the person who actually devoted the time and the attention and care to actually create a major market book. And now you've created a system where seems like there's going to be one every yeah. year with a major player yeah. <laughs> as far as Hay House. Yeah, and I want to tell you with that capability coming aboard, I feel younger. I feel younger. It extends my future out of productive work another 10, 20, 35 years. And the reason is because the part of it that triggers it, my little books quarterly, I've got that mastered and I actually enjoy that activity and I think every quarter we get better. I think the books get better. I think the process for creating the books gets better. But there again, I've got nine people on my internal team who do every part of the work. So that it's as much a pure collaboration inside Strategic Coach to create the little book that you can do something with. And then the collaboration goes out into the world. And I have to tell you, I've become almost super sensitive to anything that looks like me doing something that I shouldn't be doing. And immediately my mind switches. Now, who, who can I get to actually do that? And I think that makes me younger because I don't have the wear out type of activities that leave you really, really tired and kind of regretting the next quarter, regretting next year. And I think it's the regretting activities in the future that makes you older. Yeah, I mean, it's a few things. It's one is doing a bunch of activities that you dread doing and hate doing and have to force yourself through. But the second thing that you said, one thing you told me once, Dan, is, is that the difference when you're getting older and older is, is that your life becomes increasingly about the past, whereas a five-year-old, their whole life is pure future. And what you're describing is that your future, regardless of your age, gets abundantly bigger yeah. because of all of the who networks and so you're still playing and like you're getting younger because your future keeps extending forward you know that's interesting that you should bring up that subject because i was talking in a group and i said you know i feel that my mindset is closer to who i was 
I won't say five years old, but certainly, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. I said my general enthusiasm and my general sense of, you know, curiosity and responding to things is very, very similar. And I have terrific emotional memories from childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can remember the emotion, I can remember the experience, I can remember the situation. You know, the world hasn't done me in over the past 70 years. I've kind of retained the early enthusiasm for life and the optimism about life. It's getting even more exponential, though, as you're getting better at hooing yourself out. I mean, I feel like you've gotten insanely more creative, productive, and younger since I've even known you. And I've only known you for two or three years. And it's like, I feel like your productivity and your creativity is just boundless right now. Yeah. I feel that too, but at the same time, I feel kind of at ease with it. Yeah, you are, totally. There's no forcing. No, it's not like I have to force feed the process because I don't have many years left because I've kind of handled that conceptually that as long as I'm doing things that are regenerative activities, really youthful activities, probably, you know, I'll die young. (laughs) You know, if I die, I won't be feeling old when I die. And We were at Abundance 360 last weekend. This is a collaboration I have with Peter Diamandis. And I have to tell you, his section on longevity, so every year that's become one of the real favorites. And he had David Sinclair, who's the head of the Longevity Center at Harvard University, and he's well-known. He just came out with a best-selling book called Lifespan and he's basically saying, let's reset our sights for 120. There are some major issues of getting past 120, but we can certainly get healthily into our 90s and into our 100s. But the real knockout was this guy named Osman Kubar, and he's got this really amazing company, which is completely secret because no one really knows how he's doing what he's doing. But what he's focused on is a thing called progenitor cells in the body. So, you know, just think about it. You're back at the fetus stage and nothing's formed yet. And what you're filled up with are what are called progenitor cells. And those cells then specialize in creating bone, creating blood vessels, creating lungs, creating heart, creating brain and everything. And then when all those organs are formed, they kind of go quiet. And so people have said, well, these cells just go away. And what he's discovered is that those progenitor cells are still there. And if you turn them on, they take the organ, the particular organ, back to a youthful state. Well, it was a big deal. I have to tell you, Ben, I was sitting in the audience and I said, (laughs) this is really in the realm of the miraculous. you know." So he showed us a film of a woman with severe advanced Alzheimer's and she was just existing, you know, so she was lying in bed and you could tell she was breathing, but there was no perception on her part whatsoever. You know, you could wave your hand in front of her open eyes and she really wouldn't respond. She didn't respond to anything. And he said, we went through a process of waking up her progenitor cells. And then they showed a video of her sitting up in bed, then they showed her actually drinking her coffee, and then they showed finally of her talking and walking nine months later after they started the process. So she was really at the most advanced stage of Alzheimer's, and here she was nine months later walking and talking because they had turned on these progenitor cells. And one of them interested me personally because I have torn meniscus in my 
left knee in 1975, and so half of it was removed at that time because that's what they did back then. They wouldn't do it today, but they did it back then. And I got a lot of bone-on-bone contact when I do impact climbing or walking. I don't run at all, and I'd like to run again. He said, we're just in the last stages of FDA approval, but he said, two years, you get one shot, and six months later, you have a completely regrown cartilage, equal to the one that you had when you were full size, you know, whenever that was, 20 years old, 21 years old. He believes that within five years, they'll be able to reverse nine kinds of cancer. The progenitor cells will say, what's all this cancer doing here? And it'll restore all the thing. And he's just sitting there talking very matter-of-factly about this, you know. And he said, we knew we could do this six years ago because the progenitor cells in humans is exactly the same as it is in mice, in dogs. So he said, we already proved that it actually works The same cells operate the same way in all mammals. And he says, so we knew we could do it, but now we have to fulfill the FDA requirements for proving that it's safe and there's no side effects and there's no other damage when we actually do this. And he's just sitting there talking very, very matter-of-factly. And he says, oh, some people I noticed in the audience would be interested in this. He said, certainly within the next five years, we'll be able to eliminate baldness. You'll regrow your original hair in the same color. (laughs) It was so funny because people say, oh, yeah, reverse Alzheimer's, reverse cancer, regrow cartilage. And they're sitting there and people are writing this down. And then he talks about men regrowing their hair and the whole audience goes crazy like it shows you what the priority is right well it really tells you what spiritual salvation really means (laughs) (laughs) full head of hair yeah so anyway this is all happening at the same time as we're introducing this concept of who not how so there's somebody out there and you don't have to become an expert at regenerating your health there's going to be a who out there whose business will be to actually help you actually regenerate your health while there's other who's in your life that are taking the load off of the tiredness you feel and the exhaustion and the fatigue that you feel simply because you're doing something that you're not the who to actually do that how. So I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in the world right at this particular time. Yeah. The more I'm digging into this concept, the more profound it's becoming to me. Essentially what I'm gathering, and I'm seeing this in you, Dan, is that a lot of people, they're thinking very small about the areas of their life, which is evidenced in the fact that they have no who's involved in their goals. You know, so for example, you know, I'm just thinking about myself, like I like fitness. I like going to the gym, but my fitness goals are limited by the fact that, you know, they're incredibly limited as evidenced by the fact that I don't have a lot of incredible team members as far as helping me on my goal. And so an initial thought that I have that I'd be interested in your thoughts are connected to the idea of who not how is obviously the notion of abundance and the idea of continuous growth and improvement and seeking elevation in all areas of your life. And just thinking to yourself, I can have more success in my finances or in my health or in my lifestyle and getting more teamwork and more mm-hmm. who's in all areas of your life. And I'm wondering from your perspective, if a person's wanting to improve their life and get better at who, not how, how do they get themselves to start thinking in those terms? Yeah, well, I think the best way to trigger this all is with bigger and better goals. <laughs> so where you are, you know, you may be in a situation where 
you know, I, I pretty well got my life organized and I, I've got things really well managed. I, I really don't need anyone to help me. And I said, yeah, but that's just with your present results. But if you were thinking, let's say a year from now, that with some crucial measurements, money's always a good one, I'm making more money. But the other thing is improvements. Let's say the five biggest improvements you'd like to make in your life for the next. And one of them could be financial, another one could be physical health, another one could be organization. You know, there's areas of your life that aren't well organized. But you put a measurable result, you know, that an outside witness on that day could say, yes, I can attest that you know, that Ben actually achieved these goals. He talked to me all along the way, and he said this was the goal, and a year ago he didn't have this result, and today he's got this result, and it's bigger, and his life is better as a result of that. Now, what's going to happen the moment that you visualize, and really, you know, goals, and I think, Ben, you and I are totally in agreement on this, that when you say you have a goal, you're actually picturing yourself in the future getting a better future result. Self. It's a future self. All goals are a picture of yourself that's a future self that's superior to your present self. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so my sense is that immediately you'll have a perception when you imagine yourself having this in the future that you really don't have a lot of the present capabilities, the hows, to actually be that person in the future. Yep. And that's a stopper for, I would say, for most individuals, that's a stopper in two ways. One is because they don't feel that they personally, individually have the capabilities to become that person, to make the improvements and make the changes. Then they say, well, that's an impossible goal, and they don't pursue it. But the other thing that happens, and I think this is even more negative, is because they know that every time they set goals, they have this feeling that they're reminded about capabilities that they don't have to get to the goal, they stop having goals altogether. No, it's so true. So I'm thinking about one of my professors. He was a young professor in my PhD program, and he studied leadership for a lot of years. And he is a very how thinker. And he and I have talked about who, not how a lot. So I'm interested in your take on this guy's scenario. He makes about, let's just say, forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year. <laughs> He's spent a decade developing an app. <laughs> by himself. And I've told him, why don't you just find someone who's expert at building websites and doing apps? He's like, no, I want to, he does it all. So he builds the websites, he builds the apps, even though he's an expert at leadership <laughs> and is so genius that he could teach people how to be better leaders, but he's spending all this time building the apps. And so from his perspective, what he ends up trying to do is he tries to get college students in his classes to help him, but none of them are committed to his future. Number one, because I don't think he's very clear on it. So he tries to get college students to semi help him with the app, but none of them are very committed. And so he's just trying to do it all by himself. But I guess a concern that he may have is, is that given his low salary, he doesn't think he can find someone to build the app for him. What would you say to him as it relates to who, not how? If he was to start actually doing who, not how and getting someone involved, and I've told him, you probably would have to leave academics. You could make 10 times what you're making very quickly if you just position yourself as an entrepreneur. But I don't know, what would you say to this guy? First of all, I would say that he's a victim of the system that got him to be a college professor. Yes, he is. A hundred percent, he is. He is. Which probably started with junior kindergarten. And in the case of a lot of professors, their parents were teachers who were in the academic system. And the academic system, as it's organized, you have to remember that our entire academic system 
in the United States is based on the factory system of around the turn of the century, 1900, in the industrial, and it's to produce people who can master the skills of really, really boring work. People are house, as all people are is house, right? Yeah, house and conforming house. In other words, that- <laughs> Compliant. What's really important for you is the machinery of the economy. And to the best of our ability, we're going to make you into an adjunct machine who will work with the actual machinery, which is the most valuable part of the economy, is actually the machinery. And in order to do that, you have to eliminate anything unique about yourself, and you have to bring yourself into total conformity. So, I mean, I'm making a very, very general statement there. I'm sure there's great, unique, talented professors throughout higher education and teachers you know, I had really, really good teachers. But I would say that the truth is in the testing, and in the academic world, all the testing is how you've mastered a how. You're never tested on your ability to access other people's who's who will do the how's for you. That would be an amazing test, by the way. That would be an amazing test. How did you do getting teamwork involved on this project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be the grade. Yeah, how little did you have to do on this project to actually bring it to success? (laughs) That would really prepare you for the world after schooling, after academia. But here's the thing about it. He thinks it's about money, okay? So he thinks it's about money. And he thinks it's about money now. And that's another thing with the how people, because how people... They want money now, right? Well, they only know a world of money now. If it's not money now, it's almost like, again, you got cheated. You got cheated. But he could talk to a graduate student who really has a future in software. And he said, would you like to work on a project? And he says, you know, I think this is going to be really valuable in the marketplace. And if you work on it and you put the team together to actually create this, then when it comes time to actually creating a company around this, I want you to be a shareholder and the work that you contribute to the project will be considered your investment. And this will give you a test to how you actually, you know, get into company creation and creating something for the marketplace. And he said, you know, better yet, if there's four or five of you that probably if you're good at this, you probably know four or five. And why don't you as a team and then we'll talk about it and we'll treat it like this is part of your education, actually knowing how to create a new software program and creating a new company. And let's shoot for a year down the road that we have something that people would be willing to write a check for us to actually do this. But you see, here he's using future money. He's using future money. Well, not only that, future money is really, really exciting because the one thing about future money is that it's always a lot bigger than present money, you know? And future money is very flexible. The other thing (laughs) is that graduate students are used to getting paid nothing. Yeah. So first of all, he probably has some savings, and if he's really passionate about that, he can take some of his savings or he can get a second mortgage or whatever he's doing. But what I want to address here that an entrepreneur wouldn't take five minutes to work this out. If you're an entrepreneur, you'd figure out how to slice and dice the project. And the other thing in this world, there's a lot of people who are really, really willing to just give their time and talent because it sounds like an exciting project. It's a great project. It's a great project. And I learned something new on this. You know, instead of going to school where I learned how to do this, I'm just going to work on an actual project. And it's so funny because my insight into Who Not How actually came from a lifetime habit of actually volunteering 
Oh, yeah, political, right? Well, political, and, you know, I was in the Army, and I had a wonderful Army career in the 1960s because on day one of the Army, they told you rule number one is never volunteer for anything. And I sat back and I thought about that, and I said, wait a minute, let me see if I got this right. If I volunteer, I'll be the only person volunteering because everybody else is following the rule, don't volunteer. I said, well, it's boring to begin with, like the Army. You have to accept that the Army, the biggest danger is actually boredom. There's nothing it's out not there. enemy <laughs> bullets. It's not enemy bullets. It's just your boredom. And I said to myself, I bet I can make my Army career really interesting just by volunteering because it'll be a new experience that nobody else you know, that I'm in the army with is actually having. So, and it actually, first of all, had to do with just doing church service on Sunday because I grew up, you know, going to church on Sunday and I was used to helping out around the church. So I just volunteered. I said, you know, it's a day off and most people are drunk from the night before and, you know, I'm going to go to church anyway. So why don't I just help the in this case, it was a priest, and I just helped with mass and everything. Then it came the end of my basic training, and the colonel who ran the overall chapel there, he asked me to come in, you know, and he says, can you sit down? You know, he says, I want to ask you a question. Would you be willing to do this for your whole career? Because you have to be okay with it because it's religious, and you can't be ordered to do this if it's not your thing. He said, so this would be your army career doing this. And I just wanted to know. So here I am at the end of basic training. You know, I was drafted. And a colonel has asked me to take a seat. And he's asked me a question if I'd be willing to be interested in something. And I said, you know, this volunteering really gives you a different army experience. And then there were three other jumps that I did. And I ended up as the entertainment director for about half of South Korea entertainment coordinator for the USO shows and for local Korean talent, and I put on plays. But back to the point was that collaboration is a lot like volunteering. And what I mean is that in most volunteering, people know there's a payoff for it. You'll meet new people, you'll get a reputation for being a good citizen and everything like that. So if you just take the concept of volunteering as it's properly understood, in personal life, and you think about it in business, I'm just going to volunteer because I think this is a great project and I really believe in what the other person is doing. And these things have a way of teaching you new things and transforming your experience. So I'll just volunteer. And a lot of people volunteer to people who don't have money, but I volunteer to entrepreneurs who got lots of money. <laughs> Most people volunteer to people who don't have money, don't have any ambition, don't have any future. <laughs> And they call it volunteerism. And I volunteer to people who have lots of money, have big dreams, and are totally reciprocal. They're kind of reciprocal. And you shape. call it collaboration. And I call it collaboration. <laughs> so I said, why would I waste myself on all sorts of volunteerism that doesn't go anywhere where I can volunteer to other entrepreneurs, you know? And, you know, money, I have an attitude towards money is that money's attracted to innovation, money's attracted to new ventures, money's attracted. So all you have to do is be part of a new venture and money is going to come. So that's my attitude. So back to our professor, you know, I think your analysis of it is right. He's probably going to have to leave. If he wants to go big with this thing, he's going to have to 
First of all, everybody else in academia is going to hate his guts for... That's one of the reasons why he hasn't done it. <laughs> yeah. It's because he's so worried about the five people around him's opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the five people in his department. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, academia is a lot like Hollywood. You're nothing until everybody wishes you dead, you know. So I think that's the thing. But what'd you get just from my talking this through? Because you're picking my brain and you're trying to get my take because you're deeply involved in the writing project of putting this in words for millions, we hope, of other people they can read this. This book is important enough that I believe millions of people should read it. Mm -hmm. And my vision for it has, you know, 100,000 copies is going to be a no-brainer, just so you know. It's going to be easy with this book and with our shared platforms and with the quality of the idea. That's easy. What I got out of this conversation, just thinking about my friend, is his utter disrespect for his own unique ability and that he is fine spending his time in toxic environments around people who are limiting his vision and he's willing to engage for a decade in house that are not getting him anywhere because he doesn't understand his unique ability and he doesn't understand even though theoretically he studied teamwork for so long he doesn't really understand how to build teams and so what i love about who not how and measuring your own success is how good are you at creating visions and seeing how little you can do and investing in yourself and investing in teams and expanding their collaboration and their capabilities. And so the other one thing that I just want to share is your concept of setting bigger and better goals. And just that that's the key to getting new who networks is just setting bigger and better goals mm -hmm. that that's the initiator. And so I just love it. And it's very expansive. My brain is just growing as I'm listening to this. Okay, Ben, first of all, I just want to tell you how enormously Younger I've become simply since you've taken this <laughs> lifetime hope and burden off my shoulders, you know, and like... It's fun. I'm having more fun. Well, I'm sitting here and I said, you know, every day I have greater confidence that in the next 10 years there's 10 bestsellers. Oh, there's more than enough content. And how you've set your team up with these little books and the interviews, I have more than enough. And you've got so many clients and strategic coach. It is very easy to tap in the well you've built to create anything we want. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.